in three, two, one. I'm Doug Duran. I'm a landowner trying to be a conservationist in Wisconsin, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. Mr. Doug Duran, could you please describe to us the area where we are right now, the driftless area of, I guess you could say, North America? Well, driftless area of the central United States anyway, but yeah, I guess of North America. So we are in the driftless area, and in Wisconsin, the driftless area is the southwest part of the state. Um, I once heard it described as a belt buckle on the corn belt. Um, The driftless area is also southeast Minnesota, northeast Iowa, and northwest Illinois. Yeah. Get working on those directions. <laughs> and so what the driftless area is, is a, an area that is devoid of glacial drift. Um, the glaciers that formed a lot of the topography of North America went around or stopped short of this area or went around of it, around it. And uh, consequently, um, the area was formed by erosion, not eruption, like mountains are formed. But this was a giant sea bottom um, Back in the day, I can't give you any, anything more specific than that. And uh, after the glaciers, uh, or as the glaciers melted, um, they stopped short of this, but the, the water flowed over the area and began the, the erosion that has formed the driftless area. So the, this part of the driftless area is uh, east of the Mississippi River and we are north of the Wisconsin River. The, the Wisconsin River sort of cuts this uh, half moon shape through the lower part of the state, central and lower part of the state, and um, it it's really the edge of where the driftless area begins. And it is a beautiful area at that. Um, in Wisconsin, there's a lot of natural beauty, a lot of diversity in that natural beauty as well. Uh, go up into the lakes part of the state, uh, you can see just incredible timbered islands and even waterfalls and things like that up there. And then down here where we're at, a lot of the gla- the glacial formations from that erosion. Right. From previous glaciations. And and uh, Doug taught us a really cool thing. So I one of my most favorite places on earth to go is in northeast Iowa and do a little trout fishing in the Iowa portion of the Driftless area. Of course, if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you know that Nicholas and I, uh, we are from Iowa, central Iowa. I guess we'd really kind of say south central Iowa, right, Nick? Something like that. Something like that. Farm country for sure. But you go up into uh, northeast Iowa, you got the Driftless formations there as well. And I've been there several times, but I never could put my finger on what was so unique about the topography there other than it, you know, was totally different than the rest of Iowa. And I knew some of the relation to uh, how it was, how it wasn't glaciated rather. But uh, what 
Doug just talked about there, it was formed by erosion instead of eruption. That was the first time I've heard that mm-hmm. explained that way. And he said, hey, when you look out on the horizon, you can see, you know, when you look at all these peaks and valleys, all the peaks peak at the same place, same elevations because of that fact that the ground was just torn down instead of bursting up out of the earth like you would see in other parts of the country and uh, it's really a fascinating thing and part of what creates the beauty here but what also is interesting about this and nick and i being from iowa and now recording here in wisconsin is i believe one of the first european accounts of iowa um, came from when uh, the explorer zebulon pike uh, crossed the mississippi river in the driftless area and uh, somewhere over by Harper's Ferry, McGregor area in Iowa, um, did some exploring there and really started to give the first, you know, letters home, I guess you could say, on what was over here. And then, of course, shortly after that, that, you know, we had continued Western expansion across our country. And, and uh, uh, but uh, just a beautiful place. We're here on Doug's farm and... Uh, if Doug and I had been from the same era in the same high school, I think we would have done some serious hanging out. I, I rarely run across a guy who cares so much about agriculture, hunting, and conservation. Usually people kind of go in one of those paths and they do not intersect and all that both, often downstream. But They were both smoking cigarettes out behind the school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. With the burnouts out in the smoke pit. <laughs> Uh, but it's been, it's been thoroughly enjoy enjoyable. I mean, uh, just, man, I can't believe I'm working right now, Doug and hanging out with you is, is, uh, been a real treat today. You've been a good tour guide. Yeah, it was, it was fun to take you guys around and kind of show you the area because I think, um, one of the things that I like to talk about most and what has influenced me most, no matter where I've lived in the country is place mm. and trying to, yeah get in tune with that place. I lived in Northern New Hampshire for a number of years in the white mountains out there. And I love that place. Mm, yeah. Um, it had a real, uh, scale to it that was bigger than this. I mean, this, the, the driftless area has a real human scale to it. Don't you think? I mean, you yeah. feel like you go out, you know, you can walk out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas out there, you know, it's a little more of a trek. And of course you get out West in the Rockies and, and you know, and it's like, I, I, I just always feel, um, Somewhat in, well, intimidated is the wrong word, but I mean, you know, it's sort of aw- awesome in, in, in the truest sense of the word. Yeah. Um, to see those kinds of things and then sort of realize the the smallness of of you and then to go to Alaska, as, as I've had the good fortune to, it even is even more uh, obvious to me there that it's, 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 it's a much less human scale and you could see why this area would be so would have been so desirable to move to, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago or 150 yeah. years ago. And, uh, because it's, it's usable land. It's, it's, uh, but yet the, with the, the terrain, the topography, the, um, and, and the, the flora and fauna, it has a, a lot going for it. Yeah. yeah. And the water, my goodness, the, the, 
streams while <laughs> I felt so silly. Uh, Doug was showing <laughs> us around earlier. I just couldn't get over how many like creeks and streams there were, and they were beautiful and they were they were see so the bottom. Clear. Yeah, <laughs> and in Iowa, that is that is not the case. You know, for for better or for worse, you know, we have different topography for one. Uh, and secondly, my goodness, everything's been tiled to death, so you're not going to have any of that. Yeah. Um, but something I really like that Kent talks about all the time on this podcast is being connected to the land. And and Doug said in his own words, the place. He loves the place. And uh, so he was showing us around. And he would literally be like, hey, that tree right there, here's a memory from there. Or this house or this rock structure or yeah. this person's house. You know. And, and so it wasn't just the land and the flora and fauna he had it. Uh, connection to but everything had a story for him and it was real that was my favorite part I, i've never felt I, I don't know if i'd say never very few times in my life have i felt more human more connected to to someone else that i just first met through them telling stories it was really cool wow that's really nice of you to say um i like to tell stories i like to tell stories about place and i sometimes don't know when to shut up so uh, <laughs> no it's, it's all it, part of it too yeah, yeah it's really good you know sometimes places have significance because something very well known happened there and then sometimes places have significance because somebody from there tells you that it does and mm-hmm. that that was very much how i felt today it's like man i would i could if you came here and didn't know doug you just drove through town and say oh you know it's nice scenery around here uh just like the town that i just went through and that one that i just went through but when you go here with somebody like nick said who has so much personal interest here and has taken the time to process the things that they've witnessed happening around them and store them in their long-term memory then it gains significance for you as well so i've definitely enjoyed catching that from you through this well maybe we should have just been running the darn uh microphones while we were driving around we could have saved all this sitting here in the farmhouse well, talking well we we uh well, I'm, I'm glad to be here too I, as a fellow hunter i'm seeing all kinds of uh mounts around the house and some sheds and and uh i feel very much uh in a happy place right now yeah. and uh i like seeing the maps uh doug has his family farm mapped out here on the on the um a wall right next to us here and uh it's just a just a really cool place that uh you're in, in a way it takes me back to my childhood because i have family uh my great grandparents lived not far from here and so we'd go up every year to that family farm and it has that that small town wisconsin countryside uh a feel here for sure so uh no it's it's a great place to be it's a great drive around and uh now we're getting the the business side of this done we're recording the podcast um i first found out about doug through a guy who has had a lot of uh i guess you'd say indirect impact on me because i listened to his podcast um i think i've mentioned it before on this podcast i did not grow up hunting i grew up an outdoorsman i was very fortunate to have uh a dad who really valued that and, and grandparents that valued that, that would take me fishing, you know, would take me out on hikes around the farm so I could get my own connection to the place where I live now on, on my family farm. And, uh, like Doug, you know, when all these stories are being told to me, they all just kind of set in and develop this passion to be outside and to be, and value every plant, every tree, every, uh, you know, animal living on this farm. And, uh, so when I, 
got to be older, I started to uh, get interested in hunting and I started listening to this podcast called Wired to Hunt. And uh, the host, Mark Kenyon, was talking about this guy that he went on this caribou hunt with. And uh, he said, yeah, he's a farmer from uh, Wisconsin. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then uh, I... Which tells you how little he knew about me because the last thing that I would use to describe myself <laughs> as a farmer... <laughs> A guy who who has a farm, it's a family farm, but you you've been hanging around here. I mean, I had a few cattle. I'm not doing a whole lot of farming <laughs> yeah, yeah. around here. Well, but but uh, it's definitely. But I love it, Mark, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a, he's a great guy. I've I've had I've I've talked with Mark on a on another podcast, but but um, when you start talking about you, it's like when I first heard your name, it's like oh okay, Doug I'll just stores it in my stored it in my memory, and then um through also through listening to that podcast i started listening to the wire or to uh the mediator podcast and um started uh hearing uh uh the voice of steve ranella another guy who has indirectly influenced me greatly in my care of uh you know th- all things hunting and conservation and the outdoors and then he started talking about this guy named doug i'm like man that's the se- I, I remember yeah, Mark talking ranella about can't him. get through a podcast without <laughs> mentioning me once. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite things about him because it's like it's nice to be remembered, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Look, uh, man, if Steve Ranella is looking to someone as as uh, as having good advice on something, that's someone you want to talk to. That's right. I think that's he's right. mostly just picking on me when he talks. <laughs> Easy target. Well, 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 whatever the reason was, I kept hearing this guy's name pop up. Well, then this hunt that I heard Mark talk about, this caribou hunt up in Alaska, that uh, he went on with Doug hits netflix i think didn't it come out on netflix first yeah, i think it did yeah and uh, i was like now i get to see doug oh there's doug he looks yeah. like a cool guy well then mark has doug on his podcast as a guest to talk about uh, chronic wasting disease management because that has been something that doug has really been i would say kind of the guy not to and he wouldn't want to take all the credit here i know that but but uh the guy who is really uh been the prominent voice on the importance of cwd you know a lot of times when things like this come out there's a lot of people early on that that want to like get on board with it but then they get exhausted by it and it kind of like fades out of the background and doug has done a great job of saying guys don't forget about this and not just by talking about it not just by putting some dollars towards it by literally doing the hands-on work to help his community here see the importance in managing chronic wasting disease. And um, there's no doubt in my mind that even though in a lot of places, chronic wasting disease is still kind of a, I don't know, I guess, what would you say, Doug, a bleak outlook at in many ways, there's, it would be a lot worse if it wasn't for people like Doug who have continued to stay dedicated to raising awareness on it and helping make some of the positive changes there. So, so Mark brought him on, Doug talked about that. Well, then came this incredible, uh, you made an appearance on stars in the sky, which is a tremendous documentary in defense of hunting. Really Doug was featured on there and that's where, you know, you really get to see the farm here. He was on another episode of meat eater, a couple episodes of meat eater for whitetail hunting. And, uh, um, then, um, uh, on more episodes of the podcast, I hear him say this awesome phrase it's right up here on this board, right above this door here. It's not ours. It's just our turn. And, uh, 
man, you couldn't sum up <laughs> our role in uh, conservation as humans any better than that phrase. So uh, how did that stroke of genius uh, just just come to you, Doug? Well, I don't know if it's a stroke of genius as much as it is just a blind squirrel finding a nut once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, thank you for all that. I, I mean, I, I would go back and, and uh, talk about chronic wasting disease, but I guess we can talk about that later and not sure. you know, what my role in it has been. I'm certainly um, a voice in the hunting community for chronic wasting disease, but... Mm -hmm. Um, really what I'm providing is my experience and perspective. Yeah. But that is a part of the ethos of it's not ours, it's just our turn, right? When I was a kid um, in this area, it was a big deal to see deer. We maybe had 10 deer per square mile of habitat, and now it's 65. Um, way more than what the habitat can really support in a sustainable ecosystem mm. way. Yeah. Deer do really well in our presence, in the presence of man and in agriculture and everything, right? So in my lifetime, the deer population has just exploded. And I was not living in this area for, well, most of the 80s. And uh, um, and even, even in the early 90s, I was in the state. I'd moved back to the state, but I was living in, in Door County, which is five or six hours away. But 22 years ago, chronic wasting disease was discovered in the state, um, south of here, about 65 miles. And um, that, uh, that issue, that disease, that problem, all kind of coincided with a bunch of different things. Uh, one was that I was beginning to take over the management of this farm this family legacy property, really, it's a conservation property now. It's not a farm. I mean, sure, it's a farm technically, but um, it's more of a, a conservation legacy property. And I'm trying to manage it in a thoughtful and sustainable way by having mm. a plan. So we had a uh, management plan put together with our goals and objectives at the top of it um, for the for this 160 acres of woods that's over here across the road that I was telling you about earlier. Anyway, um, doing some real aggressive strategies to regenerate uh, red and white oak and working with a, a, a DNR forester and a consulting forester and you know, trying to put together a good plan and then implementing that plan. Plans are great. You also have to implement them. Right? <laughs> yeah. So one afternoon, we were walking off of the ridge, uh, we being the DNR forester. His name is Mike Finley, who uh, I've known now for 20 plus years and um we're we're great friends um we're walking off the ridge and and talking about what we're doing in this shelterwood harvest which is a very aggressive strategy it takes yeah. a lot of work and you have to accept some things about what you're about to do to the woods mm -hmm. it's a, some some planned harvesting but it's gonna ch very, forever change the way that wood, woods looks but we were committed to doing quote unquote the best thing for the the area that was part of what we were talking about as a family, as we put our management plan together and we stopped at the top of the hill up there and Mike uh, and I just paused and we're just kind of looking around and, and uh, he goes, you know, I have to tell you, I really compliment you and your family for thinking in this long term uh, strategy so that a hundred years from now there will be oaks on this hillside again. Yeah. And, 
in that moment, and I don't want to, I don't want to turn this into some like spiritual thing, but it's as close to spiritual outdoors experience that I have had. And in that moment, as he's talking to me, I could feel or understood that my great grandparents, my grandparents and my parents had all done good things on this property so Mm. that I was standing there as the representative of this generation doing the next Mm. thing. And when he said there will be Oaks here a hundred again, a hundred years from now, I said, well, I guess I feel like it's not ours. It's just our turn. And Hmm. he looked at me with this little smile on his face and said, that's pretty good. You got to write that down. (laughs) And so I did. And and it was really about this place, right? About Mm -hmm. multi-generational farms been in our family for 120 years, having that epiphany about how it is my turn to do what's good for the place. And my siblings and I are all in agreement on this. And you know, it, it just came out, and I did write it down, and it's become a conservation mantra, not just for this farm, but for this area, and um, it speaks to people around the country and in several countries as well. So it's been it's been pretty pretty cool for a guy who kind of just thinks in bumper stickers, I guess. I mean, it's, it fits, <laughs> fits on a bumper sticker, you know. Um, and uh, But I think that's how that happened. And I think that that's is maybe if I have any um, ability at all, it's to reduce some things to <laughs> bumper stickers to, 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 you know, simple terms that maybe everybody can understand. Yeah. We actually, um, again, for people who have been listening to us for a while, one of our first like five or six episodes was with a lady named Abby Barton, who's just a young girl who or young lady who loves conservation and nature and, and just doing a good job of stewardship. And she quoted, that was maybe the first time I'd heard the phrase um, about a year ago is she quoted it. And then Kent knew right away that you were the one that had said something, but it was just, wait, uh, wait, did she attribute it to me? Yep. Yeah, she did. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. She That's copyrighted, folks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, she didn't. Uh, we just got ourselves into legal trouble. With Doug. <laughs> you know what, Doug? We actually got to go. <laughs> no, it's really all I ever ask is um, for for I've had a lot of people, uh, and more than I mean, I, I, when I say a lot, I don't mean five or six. I mean you know a couple of dozen who've asked me if they could use it in their presentation. Could they use it in their dissertation? Could they use it? You know, and I said, yeah, you can use it on, on anything as long as you attribute it to me and you don't put it on a t-shirt because those are mine. Yep. You know, but they can get it on a t-shirt. <laughs> well, I will talk about that later. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I own one of those t-shirts. They're good. They're good. You, 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 I should have wore it today. I wore a, uh, a, uh, pollinator week shirt designed by a future guest of the podcast, uh, Sam Soholt. But, but um, no, it's, uh, it's a great phrase. It sums it up perfectly. Um, and uh, 
it's cool that you have a cool story behind it. You know, sometimes, sometimes uh, you think of something great and it's while you're like standing in the shower or something, you know, and you're like, Hey, I should write that down at some point. But this has this awesome story of walking across a, you know, a timber cut and doing a a plan there with. uh, And I'm glad you remembered it because I have all the time. Oh man, I'm going to remember this. I'll write it down later. (laughs) Not a single time. I wrote it down because I don't remember anything. (laughs) And, and I think that it, it, you know, not to put too fine of a point on it, but being there with a trained forester, a conservation-minded forester who was, you know, working with me on this plan and, mm. you know, went through the whole process with me and with us. And for him to talk about that, and, and as as someone who's a forester who doesn't have land of his own, Mm-hmm. So his, his, he even, I remember him saying to me one other time, you know, I spent all this time helping other people with their property. Someday I hope I have some land of, of my own. And I said, well, I feel like you're a part of this place. Mm-hmm. And um, that, if I had any other advice or had any advice for people when it, at, as you start thinking about that kind of thing, is there's an example of, you know, trying to be a conservationist. Well, one of the things I learned is I don't need to know everything about conservation. Mm. I, you know, when I need, when we're talking about forestry, I'm going to talk to foresters. When I'm talking about um, Great point. biology, I'm going to, you know, wildlife biology, I'm going to talk to, bio, learn about CWD, I'm going to talk to wildlife epidemiologists. Mm. If I'm going to learn about prairies, I'm going to talk to guys like you. Um, you know, fisheries, I'm going to talk to, to, you know, to, to fish manage, uh, management people. Fish biologists, there's the word. And fish people. Fish <laughs> fish people. It sounds like you know, water. Supposed to grateful dead yeah. people. I don't yeah. know. Um, <laughs> uh, it's it's uh that's one of the, the the pieces of for me that makes this so much so much fun and interesting is that I don't have to know all this stuff. There's resources out there for people to to reach out to and you know, I, I've been pretty good at connecting with with those people and coordinating that kind of stuff. And I'm not to, not saying that I don't. I mean, I, I do land man, land management consulting, but I will tell you that most of what I do for my clients, they could do themselves if they took the time to to yeah. to mm. do it. I encourage them to be more educated about their property, mm. um, working with you know professionals, no matter what it is, and 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 scientists, and understanding that you still need to have your own mind and and be skeptical um, about things that, that, you know, it's all part of it. Well, I, I got a question. So Ken and I talk a lot about education being the key to conservation. Uh, most people are willing to care, but they don't know that they should care. But a lot of people don't really want to learn. You know, it's just energy. It's just another thing that's vying for their attention. What who are the kinds of people or, or what are you saying to people that convinces them, oh, this is something I should even look into? Why do you do what, what convinces you to do anything? What is the number one thing that convinces you to do anything? Yeah, it's got to be some kind of personal value. Inspiration. Come on. It's simpler than that. Money. Let me tell you, no, <laughs> no. So, um, as some people know, I'm a bit of a fan of uh, of the Grateful Dead, and uh, spent a lot of time at Dead shows in, in my well spent youth. Um, when people would come to the Grateful Dead with 
uh, ideas about we should do this. Mm-hmm. The band would sit around, and Garcia, uh, Jerry Garcia always asked the same question. Is this going to be fun? <laughs> uh, yeah, the fun of true. conservation is it's hard to deny. I mean, it's very serious business, very yeah. serious business. Chronic wasting disease, very serious business. But I can't tell you how much fun I've had because of hunting and because of my concerns about CWD and part of what it's led to, which we'll, we'll talk about later, but inviting more people. And we've ended up having a lot more fun. Uh, last, last Sunday, I had a group of people here helping with some limbing and thinning of, of pine trees up on the ridge. And I know they had fun. Um, it wasn't about coming and hunting here, all of whom, except for one, had, had the, day, the opportunity to hunt here for a day, and they're all hoping for another day or two, yeah. <laughs> which if you're listening to this podcast, yeah, you'll be back. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was clearly fun for them to be there because it was interesting, right? It was yeah. interesting, and they're contributing, and it's all of that. Um, and for me as a landowner, it's, it's fun too. I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's drudgery to do things by myself because I really like doing things by myself out here too. But when I have a group of people that are a part of a hunt or a part of a conservation day or you know, any of that where we're, we're you know, engaged in it and why we're doing this and isn't that interesting and marveling at it, right? Yeah. To mm-hmm. me, fun and wonder are two of the, are the biggest hooks for anything. And boy, conservation is full of those two things. Yeah. That is true. That's a great point. Uh, it's like it's like we're meant to to do that you know meant to be involved and engaged in that way and uh, when you do uh, put yourself in the position to be participating like that uh, a lot of it comes naturally and you're like you said your interest is uh, dialed up a little bit you're not it's so against like the normal monotony of life to be participating in that way and ton of fun yeah for sure i think it also speaks to um our you know some of our basic uh ideas and feelings Uh, my wife who doesn't hunt she a little bit and she fishes some but she gardens and i can show you pictures of a series of pictures of my wife the ones where they, she has the biggest smile in, in, on her face and when she is most content is when she's in this garden that's out mm. here. Um, I think that part of why people like that engagement with the, the earth so much is that you're, you're feeling, you, know, you yeah. feel it, and that, that we crave that, and it's some sort of ancestral um, feeling that we have. Um, and that's been lost in a lot of ways yep. uh, but it's also why some of the we're seeing more and more people coming wanting to live in places like this even though maybe mm-hmm. they're urbanites or they grew up in urban areas and that that sort of thing it's like we're we're trying to return to you know what it you know to the to part start of that core of humanity yeah that's that's very well said um i think uh you know that's all that that was communicated in those times when you didn't directly say that like you just did, but it, you know, it emanated from you and, and even the other guys that I mentioned earlier that you were, that you were with, they were good at showing that as well and showing that, that value and that connection and, and 
putting their finger on it like you just did saying hey you know how when you get that feeling it's because of this and and or at least i think it is and well uh, i think that's why i get it yeah right the wonder of it um i can't tell you how frequently this happens but seems a little weird to be saying it out loud now but where i'll just be walking across the the lawn out here and i'll just stop because i will hear something or i will see something um and you know i'll look over and the cattle are standing there staring at me and chewing their cuds or whatever and it's just (laughs) there's this it's a moment of zen moment of connection that uh that gives you pause. I never mm. remember have, ever having that feeling when I lived in the city. Yeah. I mean, I would leave to go and find that. Or I might go in a park yeah. and hang out or, or you know, find a, a shoreline or something like that, you know, to hang out. But, yeah. and that's not to say that I didn't dig living in the city either. You right, know? I mean, yeah, it's there's like, advantages It's there all too, of that, yeah. you know, it's all of that. Yeah, yeah, well said, for sure. So, all that to say, Doug is... Uh, incredibly interesting person he's he's uh somebody who's tuned in with it and uh a man of many talents too you'll be able to check out uh instagram uh look up hoxie native seeds and you'll find a video of doug uh playing some music for us what <laughs> what don't worry we'll, we'll, we'll it was it was uh, in we'll it was it was in the uh yeah well yeah we'll give it uh we'll, we'll copyright your uh, performance there but. oh well i don't know I, I yeah i remember what even i was doing oh i told you about why i wanted to learn how to play the guitar was yeah, Lou Reed's song. Al well, Lou's dead. I don't think he'll mind. <laughs> I, I don't think he'll it. mind if I you know, you play a few notes of uh, the song "Sweet Jane." Yeah, but um, yeah, the Meat Eater podcast blues stuff. It's you know that, you know talk about fun. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to be a serious musician. Yeah, but um, uh, man, it's fun. I mean, I do this open mic thing and. You, you can I see the joy that music, not necessarily my music, but <laughs> other music uh, brings to people. And it, you know, it's it's um, there's only two podcasts. Sorry, fellas, but there's only two <laughs> podcasts that I've listened to every episode of. One is the good old Grateful Dead podcast, and the other one is Meat Eater Trivia. And that's right, I haven't listened to all of Steve's podcasts, and I haven't listened to all the old Cal's podcasts or anything, but Meat Eater sure. Trivia. And the Grateful Dead podcast, you know, that Mediator trivia has got that opening guitar it's lick re- at the beginning. It's, it's a really, really good high. opening. Yeah. Lately, that's been the best part of Mediator trivia for me. Um, You've not been I, doing real I, well? I, I have not. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I was doing awesome. I mean, I was, I was averaging probably a six at least every time. And then I got my father-in-law in on it. I texted him. I said, because he's, he's big into the culinary side of things. And I'm like, and I'm missing most of those questions. I, you know, I, I, I can barely make a bowl of cereal in the morning. But uh, the, so I'm missing most of those. I knew he'd get them. And I'm like, hey, you know, just thought you might enjoy playing this. Well, then ever since I did that, my game is just tanked. And huh. he's like whipping my butt every week. But I did a couple of weeks ago. I got back on the, on the board. I think I took second place. I got a seven. So wow. I was pretty happy with that. Well, and and you can even pass this on to anyone who questions. I do not pause and think about my answer. Oh, however, I don't either, man. However, I do. Uh, I do at times. I'm operating heavy machinery or uh, something that's got like 39 pulleys on it that would love to just pull me in with it, <laughs> and uh, and I'll be like so focused on not losing a finger that uh, I'll uh, forget to listen to the question, and then I'll hear him be like. 
all right, reveal your answer. And I nearly have a panic attack I'm trying to hit pause fast enough so I can go back and hear what the question yeah, was again. Yeah. So other than that, you know, but lately here, man, I'm rolling like threes, twos sometimes. Well, I was, I've only been on the podcast, uh, on the trivia show once. Been on the podcast a bunch of times, but the trivia show once, and I sucked. <laughs> I, the, the I pro- might have got three. Jim Heffelfinger was on, and he was just like, "Hey, you know, answering everything." <laughs> I don't think anybody That's got a, a perfect guy. store, but score. But um, Jim, who's a brilliant guy, and 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 that was before they were like throwing a bone to the guests too, right? They're sure, ask yep. me something about the Driftless area, or something. <laughs> <laughs> ask a question about the Driftless area, so I get one right. I think. And I might be off on that. I think I got a three, but I do okay. I mean, it's 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 fun to to do it. But I'll tell you this: that a lot of that, a lot of those questions, they, they, you know, they're in the office. Their stuff is coming up. I mean, it's right, not yeah. like they're this is like oh yeah, coming well, out of the blue somewhere. Yeah. yeah, I think Steve gets the answers ahead. of him. <laughs> <laughs> He just throws off a couple. Just I'm always to- <laughs> amazed at how well he and uh, Brody do. It's it's really impressive. But no, it's a it's a fun show to listen impressive. to. And I'll, and we'll we'll do a plug for them. We don't get anything from from media. It's just a great show. Neither that, do I, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is actually just uh, uh, just because we think it'll make your life better. Tune into the Mediator Trivia Show. It's on. It's a uh, good time. It's on Wednesdays, right? Wednesday yeah, it's mornings, on Wednesday yeah. mornings. So. Yeah. So uh, definitely tune into that and uh, test your knowledge there, and and it's it's a great time. Wait, the, no, I thought we were gonna, I thought we were gonna protest. We're protesting until they send uh, Doug here a hat or something. He he needs something <laughs> for his contributions. Oh <laughs> no, no, I no, I get plenty of things from me. I get plenty of things from that uh, association. Yeah. But no, he's a, Doug's a man of many talents, and uh, I'm sure uh, I'm sure uh, he if he got to be on trivia more often, he, he'd definitely be winning a few. I'm amazed at how much knowledge he has. It was when we were driving around with him earlier, just the, the facts that were rolling. It's like very impressive. So yeah. I'm sure. Right. Uh, but he had no way of checking those either. So yeah, I could have been, true. been making that stuff well, up as I was going along. Well, you know? while I'm talking about his talents then acting, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's either, he knows a lot or he's a great actor. He's one That's of the right. Two. He's up for an Academy award or something, but no, he's a man of many talents. And, of course, uh, conservation is the main thing that we're going to talk about, but also um, the agricultural side of this. Um, uh, conservation and ag and hunting in my brain, and I imagine in Doug's brain as well, those things meld together quite well. But um, for sake of conversation, we should probably parse them out a little bit. So. Here, the, it's definitely an agricultural part of our country, um, as we were talking earlier, for better or for worse. Uh, definitely, definitely a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, that's changing how the land is used here compared to what it, what it was previously quite a bit. Uh, can you kind of give just like a background of what farming would historically looked like around here and up till today? Sure. Um this area lends itself very well to sort of the quintessential Midwestern dairy farm. Like mm. I, I think I mentioned earlier, the license plate, the Wisconsin license mm. plate, it's got that red barn in the silo and the cattle standing, and it looks like our farm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. As we're driving up the highway. For all I know, that's where they got the, <laughs> the image. Maybe you need to put a copyright on that. <laughs> well, uh, but very typically, um, a couple hundred acre property would have 
um, a barn, you know, a house, a chicken coop, a grain granary, uh, you know, maybe a pig pen. Um, and this place had that. Our farm is a little bit bigger than a lot of them in the area. I mean, I knew a lot of folks who had 120 acres to 160 acre farms, hmm. but of that 120 or 160 acres, you know, a hundred to 120 acres of it would be farmed or pasture and there'd be very little woods just kind of the the ridge of the woods Mm -hmm. whereas our farm uh this land is 400 acres and it was bought originally for uh, the timber that was on it because my great-grandfather had a sawmill about a mile from here down on duran road and um he bought this land 120 years ago specifically for the timber to feed that sawmill and so a farm was carved out of it but mm. to this day, 240 acres of it is woods, 60 yeah, acres amazing. of pasture, and we farmed about 100 acres when we were farming, farming. Um, and so this area was full of little farms like that. You know, mm. forget about the big chunk of woods. Think about the 100 acres of tillable and, yeah. you know, some pasture. And, and, and like I said, about 160 to 200 acre farms, a lot of those. You know, the, most of the droves, roads that we drove around on, as I was giving you a tour of the area, I was pointing out, that used to be a farm, and that used to be a farm, and that used to be a farm. Yeah. The land is still there. Sometimes right. the houses are still there. Sometimes the buildings are still there. But the farm ceases to exist. Yeah. Um, the cropland, when I was a kid, um, the cropland, you know, I was born in 1959, so, you know, the 60s and 70s were sort of the, the high times of the small dairy farm. Mm. Uh and you could raise a family on a farm like this, milking 30 cows and having some pigs and raising a few head of, you know, some steers and then having chickens and it was very sustainable. Right. Then in the 1970s, things started to change. And as we were talking about earlier, Earl Butts was the secretary of agriculture yeah. and he said, get bigger, get out. Mm. And Our that started to change the attitude, but also that the, 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 you know, agriculture was going to change whether Earl Butts said that or right, not. Right, you know, it's right. just me- the mechanical um, advantages that were happening. But heck, when when we were farming, we were farming with you know antique tractors, really forties yeah. and fifties, farm all C's, H's yeah, and M's, open, open stations. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I still don't have a cab on my. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, and I remember we got a Ford five thousand diesel. You know, a sixty horse tractor. It was like a big deal. We but we did a lot of farming with a farm yeah. all M man. Yeah, yeah, there's an old story about the farm all M. You put chains on it, you can get out of kind of any kind of trouble with a farm all M. But uh, <laughs> but you know, discing and I mean, so much of what we did, we put a lot of square bales. The barn that uh, on this place, you know, was uh, was built finished in 1917. So it's whatever you know, hundred and some odd years yeah. uh, old. And that was built as a loose hay barn, you know. But okay, then yeah. when I was a kid, we were stacking hay in there, square bales, mm. thousands and thousands of square bales, you know. Um, very, very different. The farm, a farm like this had, you know, it was a full-time job for a, a couple of, of adults and and their kids, you know. Right, right. Uh, I think I told you the story earlier about, you know, if I wanted, we, if we wanted to make money, we didn't make any money here on this farm. We got a roof over our head and a place to, you know, roof over our head and, and something to eat. If we wanted to make money, we'd go and work for some other farmer. So, but it was very community oriented. We went through Casanova earlier and 
you know, Kaz had a grocery, two grocery stores, a butcher shop, a, a blacksmith shop, a plumbing shop, a hardware store, you know, a bakery, a barber shop, a Ford dealership, three gas stations, two of them which had service uh, stations, and four bars. So yeah. we, and we still got four bars. I mean, it was, a, and, oh, and there was a feed mill too. And the feed mill was kind of the, the center of it all because, you know, you take a pickup load of, of ear corn yeah. in to get ground for your feed for the week. Yeah. And that was a, it was just how things were done. Well, that's not going to last forever, right? I mean, it's just gonna, that's going to change. Um, unfortunately, the changes were pretty hard on a lot of people. My family was able to hold on to this property because my folks lived work. We lived off the farm, but my folks also had jobs off the farm. So sure. A guy milk cows here, and then he had a job off the farm. But then we did all the field work and the fencing, and you know all the other stuff, the chores that needed to be done. And then he got every other weekend off. So you mm-hmm. know we were, we know how to milk cows and handle cattle and do all that stuff. Um, and really, when I graduated from high school in the late seventies, I mean I know guys who bought their family's farm and and did okay with it. Yeah. Um, through the eighties, um, over there on the wall, there's a, the last milk, uh, uh, milk ticket. It's the, uh, the, the shows you how many pounds of milk went out of here on it was the last day. It was in March of 88. Wow. And, um, you know, you can make a living doing that. Milk was actually worth more per hundred weight then than it is now. Yeah. Um, but it was going very differently um, Casanova had a creamery, uh, Bunker Hill that we went through. Yeah. Uh, that's where our, our milk went to the cheese factory up there. There were these little cheese factories all over the place. Yeah. And, but specialization came, uh, and you know, and it's just kind of had to see it coming. But as I said, if, if I would have bought into or bought out the farm or whatever in the late seventies, I would have been able to buy, you know, the early nineties or mid nineties, probably been able to to buy the place and pay it off but what had begun to happen too is that as agriculture was changing this area the driftless area this cool belt buckle in the middle of a circle of cities minneapolis chicago milwaukee madison you know even dubuque iowa could be included in that in the middle of it all is this beautiful area that's unlike anything else around it in the other directions and people started to be drawn to this area um and so absentee ownership started to be a thing mm-hmm. and I, I don't begrudge it at all. You know, I mean, I've seen wonderful things happen as a result of absentee owners and good conservation work done and all that, but those changes happen and they've happened over the arc of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting to see and be a part of it. And my God, I can't tell you how fortunate I feel that our family's been able to hold on to this place. And it, and this is no joke. There is nothing that I could do on this farm now to justify the return on investment of what it would cost me to buy it. Mm. And that is a bit of a problem when it comes to the future of small agriculture in Mm. in areas like this. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. And, and of course, the lesson there and just seeing how a small economy functioned when people had their food close to where they lived and uh how many other jobs that supported and uh how much more resilient i mean if all of a sudden the dollar wasn't worth worth anything you still had 
a local food chain to keep each other alive. My my <laughs> older brother lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and he both of my brothers do, but my older brother lives there and Dave was the last one to melt cows here and he works in um movie and television production. Okay. And he's a real smart guy and and uh but he's also super as all my siblings are, but Dave as, as much if not more than anyone very connected to this place. And uh when we were talking about, well, you know, what the hell are we going to do with the farm? <laughs> you know, <laughs> as I told you the story about my younger brother dying and things, yeah, you know, started yeah. changing 28 years ago. And I remember David saying, you know, at the end of the day, when the stuff starts coming down so heavy that I need to get out, I can always go to the farm and raise tomatoes. Yeah. And there really is a self-sufficiency. Yeah. I'm very confident in my ability to be able to support myself and my yeah. family and, and a whole lot of folks on this yeah. property. You, yep. know, you saw my cattle oh, out there. Yeah. Yep. Got six steers that are going to, to going to be butchered here in July, and I got people lining up for that. Yeah. Meat, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's not a confidence that is shared, you know, commonly. That's, I, you know, I have a lot of friends, and I have, like, maybe two that I believe they think, you know, if, if a lot of things started going wrong and they had to be more self-sufficient, they would make it. Dozens and dozens of my other friends are like, oh, yeah, no, I would stand no chance. Yeah, and yet when you, like Doug was saying earlier, when you drive around the area, you see all the place where other people could have said the same thing 50 years ago. Yeah, we got our farm right here. We got we got all the, you know, dairy. We have uh, protein. We have, uh, you know, carbohydrates. You know, you, you basically had what you needed no matter what. And so... It's it's a it's a good point for sure, and you know we talk about it all the time on the podcast. You got to see the value beyond the dollar, and um, to support small farming, you know either you can take the dollar mindset, echoed in the words of of uh, of uh, Secretary of Ag Butts back in the seventies, get big Our or get out, friend Butts, yeah. or uh, you know you can take the other view of it and say, yeah, it does have to make financial sense, but it also uh, doesn't have to be the, that doesn't have to be the only consideration. And uh, I think when you're willing to do that, you can preserve something special and something that makes uh, long-term sustainability for your family, for your community. And then of course, uh, from a conservation standpoint the land that all of this is happening on um we were talking earlier too just some of the in our neck of the woods down in iowa some of the negative effects of so much ground and it's going on here too so much ground being leased you know we what, what was the phrase you used doug party like nothing, a nothing parties like a rental <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nothing parties like a rental yep uh, drive it like you rent it, farm it like you rent it. Yeah. Uh, all all goes all goes into the same idea. If you're disconnected from that ground that you're using, um, that you're dominating, then uh, you're gonna you're gonna make decisions that aren't best practice for long term sustainability of those acres. You know the the phrase "living off the land" was such in in such uh, favor for such a long time, but that isn't quite right, is it? No, living. Uh, uh, on the land, and that's not quite right either. Mm. I like living with the land. Yes, the idea yeah. that we're living with the land. One of the things that I've seen in the change in agriculture in this area, I mean, beyond the get bigger, get out thing, right? Where and, and it only makes sense that two two farmers, you know, like there's a father and son team near here that 
uh, farm a whole lot of land, well, they can do that because it's you know they're farming corn and beans and corn and yeah. beans and corn and beans, and um, and they can do that. And you know, I don't begrudge them that or anything, but um, I've talked to them. I've talked to some other farmers, and I believe that those fellows had raised marbles as if that's what the uh, market was. Yeah. So it's it's almost as if they've gone from having a connection. Some people, and not everybody, and I'll tell you, when I've been to Pheasant Fest and talked to a lot of farmers out there, it's really gratifying to hear the, you know, the connection or reconnection or evolution of connection, because that's what, this has all been evolutionary for me, too, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but financial viability versus maximizing profit, Yeah. Um, those are two, I think, important things to be able to discuss. Well, if you're going out and you're trying to buy a piece of ground around here or anywhere else... You probably got a big nut that you're going to have to pay, yeah. and so you are going to have to maximize profits. Um, but how? God, I was talking to our, our new natural resources board member uh, last night, who's a, a farmer, former farmer. But um, and he was talking about how can a young man or a young couple buy land in this area when the people that they're competing against are from you know, the West coast or yeah, wherever who yeah. are buying it with money that doesn't yeah. even make sense out here. Yep. Yeah. There's nothing I could do. That was what I was getting at before. There's nothing that I could do now to justify what the market value of this land is because yeah. so much of it isn't tied to return on investment. It's this intrinsic value, which is kind of cool to think about too. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's not all negative. Oh, it's too damn bad. These people from away are buying all the land out there. And well, you know, it kind of tells me that we've got something to offer here. So yeah, how do we right. hook into that? So evolutionary thinking about all of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's um, a great point. Do you uh, see any, go ahead. uh, do you see, not that it's a problem that totally needs a solution, but do you see any sort of, uh, working in the context or, for lack of a better term, a solution for people with like mega money coming in and buying land and, and just shooting up the prices. Any way we could work with them or? Well, I, I'll say this. Some of my land management clients, I have a land managing land management consulting business uh, that, you know, that I don't really advertise much anymore, but um, we can talk about that too. But most of my clients, well, hell, not most of them, all of them are, absentee owners who came out and bought a part of the driftless area mm. and the cool thing about it is they tend to want to do good conservation stuff yeah. mm. um uh and and they tend to have the wherewithal to do it and they don't need to make, make that land work for them so they're not working the land over right they do li they do want to work or live with the land when they're there <laughs> you know yeah, which yeah, they're not there yeah. all the time yeah. but yeah. so that and I see, I've seen great conservation benefits as a result of those kinds of relationships, as opposed to somebody who does have to meet a mortgage and do all of that. So, you know, how do we do that? Well, I mean, I think there's cooperative opportunities. I mean, it's part of what I'm trying to do with sharing the land and, oh, yeah. and you know, hunting cooperation and access cooperation, because there's so much more to, to, to the land than, you know, simply, well, what can I raise on this or how can I extract money from it or you know crops or whatever there's just so many things that that we can do and I, and I would say that um about half of the folks that are my clients they're all looking for adding value doing the best thing and then the and them and the other half don't want to screw it up 
Yeah. Mm. They're not like, oh, what can yeah. I do to, uh, what can I do to uh, extract value from this land? What can I do to, you know, be lord over it? I mean, they're owning it as being lord over it, right? Yeah. Yep. But it's, I think that um, leasing is an interesting thing. The idea of leasing land to do agriculture on it. Uh, and so you have a landowner who's looking for a return on investment, but if you have a converse, if you have a relationship with that leasee and the leasee isn't necessarily having to beat every dollar out of that land, nothing parties like a rental that they're trying to get every dollar out of that land. If you're working with a cooperative landowner, who's like, I want to do good things for this land. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, then let's work together on it. Um, one of the landowner uh, groups that I uh, was invited to speak to at uh, Pheasant Fest, one of the most fascinating parts of it was my, my, my friend Kristen and a couple of other folks talking about turning your red acres green. You know, this whole yeah. idea that we've got green acres that are, are best producing, and then you've got those marginal acres on the edge of it where you where when they're you're just your mentality is well we're going to farm that land so you're going to just pump the same amount of inputs into it for less return what else can we do there yeah uh let me give you another example i uh, god i wish if you guys hear me talking about this on the podcast will you reach out to me about this two fellas that i met at pheasant fest when i was getting a parking sticker for my truck and they're like hey doug how you doing and i'm like do I know you guys? And they're like, no, but we know you. <laughs> and I forget about that sometimes, right? That people yeah. are going to know. But anyway, so here's these two young fellas who have a, they, they are land leasers. They are, and they're, so they're ag guys who, uh, they own a little bit of land, but then they're leasing land to do production agriculture on. But what they're also doing is they've got into the outfitting business. And I'm sorry, I think I'm just fine with some with some of the outfitting and how it's done. Sure. It's like anything in life. It's all in the way that you handle it, right? Right, yeah. right. So these guys were taking the red acres and paying the or, or saying to the landowner, look, we're making more money off of the green acres. This is where we should be doing the agricultural work. These fringe acres the red acres that aren't as productive, how about you do this? You put that in the CRP and the landowner might go, well, yeah, but you know, I get $200 or $250, whatever the, right, the, yeah. the, the, the um, CRP rate is X and the rental rate is X plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what these guys have done and said, okay, we'll rent the whole place from you. Let's put those red acres into CRP. We will pay you the difference between CRP and what the rest of it is earning on a rental basis, but then they use it as a part of their outfitting business. That's mm. that's smart. That's really yeah. So, I mean, you know, a lot of good stuff is happening there, yeah. and you could say, well, yeah, but it's too bad. It's public. Well, it's private land. Right. You know, the public isn't getting a chance from the walk-in programs. Well, you know, we can talk about that as we talk about sharing the land and stuff, but there's room for a lot of different ways of thinking about it. And I was just fascinated by what these guys were telling me. And yeah. Yeah. I meant to go back and talk to them yeah. all weekend at Pheasant Fest. And you know, well, you know what it's like at Pheasant oh, Fest, yeah. man. Yeah. It's the busiest one yet. Yeah. And said. so I just didn't, I just never got reconnected with them Yeah. and they didn't have a card or whatever. I mean, we were getting parking passes, but yeah. I was like, wow, there's a couple of smart guys who are willing to look at it differently. Yes. What else can we do here? Creative to, solutions. Yeah. Creative solutions. Yeah. And we've talked about that before where, uh, the, the, um, Nick's kicking my foot here. Am I on the cord? I think so. Okay. You good. 
sure you don't disconnect yourself. No, we're, I think, yeah, I think we're good. That would be the kind of stuff that would happen with me. <laughs> another, another podcast disaster <laughs> with Doug. <laughs> Doug, the cursed podcaster. <laughs> Uh, but but no, we've talked about that many times. Farming used to be such a an example of creative solutions. I mean, yeah, how many things you you know you you probably still find things around here on the farm, Doug, that your grandfather or whoever had rigged together to work for. You know, we have on our farm our founder uh, uh, Carol. Uh, his nickname, of course, is Hoxie, which is how our company got its na- oh, nickname. Oh, is that right? Yep. So, so anything that he fabricated for a special special use, it gets the the name Hoxie in front of it. So that, that's a Hoxie wrench. That's a oh, that, I that's, gotcha. that, 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 that's a Hoxie hook. You know, and and uh, I like it. Yeah, you know, and it was it was that kind of ingenuity that was used all the time to make a farm work. And uh, going to this bigger model, this corporate model where, well, let us do the solutions for you. Let us do the thinking for you. Here's the prescribed method. Well, that's really, there's, there's always give and take, right, in the, yeah. in the universe. And uh, unfortunately, the give that we've had to surrender is um, all the things we've talked about. And has led to a much bigger model of farming and, you know, a lack of creativity. So hearing about guys like you just mentioned, that's that's super exciting, honestly, yeah. whether you agree with leasing hunting ground or not, which is a great time to I talk believe about in that. Pri- private property rights. Yeah. And yeah. that that there are a whole lot of solutions to some of the um, potential solutions, I should say, to some of the problems that we have in the outdoor world. And just saying that everybody ought to let people hunt on their land, their private land, is uh, not one of them. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, I I agree. But that's the soapbox. It you know, depending on how much time we got here, I, I'll get I'm, up. Hey, on I'm I'm point. that can. I'm willing to open, man. Get that can opener and just crank it. I'm ready for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once you yeah, go ahead and dive into that, Doug. Explain that a little bit because I think it is an issue that doesn't really get talked about. It's almost like this. Uh, you know, block management, walk-in access, and I will call IHAP ground is only ever seen in 100% positive connotation or talked about in that way. What are some of your concerns if every acre went to that model? Well, you know, the North American model of wildlife conservation, which has been, you know, sort of evolving over the last hundred years and really has only been expressed in real um, great terms in the last 30 by Valerius Geist and Shane Mahoney, yeah. two Canadians, I might add. Yep. Um, uh, that somehow a lot of people in the outdoor community hang their hat on, like, oh, the North American model. And I'm like, you know, okay, but what it, you know, what is that exactly? And that part of it is is that we're not supposed to be the, the the commodifying wildlife. I mean, there's seven tenants, and commodify the commod, commodification of wildlife shouldn't uh, you know happen, which is really comes down to the sale of meat for most people that you talk with about it. And it's like, well, I'm not sure that that's um, because we certainly have commodified wildlife. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. a part of it. You yeah. Know? Um. So the people's game, you know, that, that wildlife is the people's game, which I, I believe in, but the ground that it lives on in an area, especially like this, that's 95% private, private is not. Yeah. So access has value. And it used to be when I was a kid 
that I could pretty much go wherever the hell I wanted to and go hunting. Sure. Um, mostly because I knew everybody and I knew their kids and we were all doing this together or, you know, people got together and it was group hunting and stuff. Well, then what happened over time? Let's say even the last 25 years, you know, since right before uh, the turn of the century. Well, outdoor media is a part of it. Um, the, the interest in owning a piece of land that you can call your own is a part of it. Mm you know, recreational property. Um, people buy land for a lot of different reasons, and one of them is the recreation value of it. I think I told you guys this earlier, 65% of the land in this county is owned by people who don't live here on a full-time basis. Yeah. No, that's not, they're not all recreational owners, but a lot of them are. Yep. Um, so access to the people's game and, you know, the, Game is owned by everyone and it's held in trust by the government. Uh, there are so many holes that I could poke in the North American model, and it needs to be it needs to be updated. But one of them is this idea that somehow I bought a hunting license, and consequently I should have a I should now I'm now owed a place to hunt. Mm. And, well, you're you're not. I mean, sure, you're a public landowner. You can go and hunt on public land. Yeah. And 5% of the land in this county is an example of it. But we're not getting, you know, deer management or any other kind of management happening as a result of it. But because of all of these changes, uh, agricultural changes, local economy changes, um, ownership changes, all of this is all a part of the change in access. Used to be, as I said, you could go, I could go pretty much anywhere. And then it kind of turned over to this thing where people started posting their land. We started posting our land because people were doing bad stuff on yeah, our land. Yeah. That's the long and the short of it. So yeah. unrestricted public access just doesn't work out very well for landowners who are engaged and uh, in their property and the management of it. It just doesn't work out very well. It sounds kind of like what you're saying is that when there was relationship with two things, the land you were around and the people who own the land, it was a lot easier to let people roam because there was more trust, there was more relationship, just interconnected, like you were saying, small, fa smaller farm, small town. And you were telling a story after story about how your towns stuck up for each other when we were, we were there earlier. Um, but now, now that there's not, you know, that that relationship with the people, or I mean, with a lot of your neighbors, you do, but you know, you start getting further out, a lot less relationship, and you start getting people coming on that. You don't really know. And then all of a sudden you're having to put up uh, posted signs because, well, people you're not in relationship with are doing stupid things. Well, and people that we knew were doing stupid things, too, <laughs> <laughs> which was a part of the problem also. <laughs> but um, one of my favorite Leopold, Elder Leopold quotes is, I'm interested in two things, the relationship of people to the land and the relationship of people to each other. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's that a, that's is really a, a part of all of this, right? I yeah. used to hunt with my, and I still do. I hunt with my buddies, with friends. When I grew, was growing up, I was hunting with, with you know, my local friends and stuff. I still yeah. do a little bit of that with them, but it's a bigger circle of friends that I that I hunt yeah. with now. But access has value when you begin to think about all of the 
the reasons for that, right? Well, first of all, owning a piece of property, this is the number one revelation of every landowner I've ever worked with. (laughs) The number one revelation of every landowner I've ever worked with is, holy moly, owning a piece of property is a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. And this this concept of hunting is conservation is like mm, okay, hunting could can be conservation, but hunting first and foremost is extraction. So if you allow someone to hunt on your property, or someone just goes and hunts on your property, the number one thing they're doing is going and taking something, yeah. or trying to take something right. at least. So. The walk-in programs, I'm so very supportive of these voluntary public access programs that are in the farm bill, um, which you know pay landowners to open their land to access. Right. I'm very supportive of them. I think it's a part of this access puzzle. Um, yeah, and I think it works great with people who have no intention to hunt there themselves. Well, sure, or a bigger landowner who, you know, the the the, the land that we're talking about allowing access to is half a mile down the road or a mile down the road yeah. or it's getting to some other property or something like that. Where it's around here, your average landowner is, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 acres. Sure. And so like a property like ours, it's 400. I have 11 neighbors. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I've witnessed the problems with the positive, but also the positive with like the voluntary public access programs. Unrestricted access, public access. Yeah. Um, those properties tend to not be very good neighbors to the people around them. Mm. And the reason for it is, is that, you know, sure, you're not supposed to cross the fence, but I just stuck a deer. It ran into the guy's place over there. Well, if that's a neighbor that you know, you probably have an arrangement with them, right? Yeah. My neighbor up here, I think I told you, I have 11 neighbors and 10 of them I get along with really well. And one of them thinks I'm, (laughs) and I think he is too. Um, And, but we have an understanding if a deer is, shot on his property and crosses into mine, he'll get a hold of me. Yeah. Or he will grab it as he did this pasture and pull it onto his side of the fence because it died just across the other side. If he didn't need to get a hold of me, he just did that. Right. I mean, and, and, and there was no problem with that. But what if that's happening every other day, like during the rut? Mm. That, you know, as one person, I refereed a, <laughs> I got in the middle of, I was because I was asked who people reached out to me to help them get, let a landowner actually access their land to go in and get this deer that they hit. And the landowner said to me, Doug, every day I got a new neighbor over there. It's not like I'm dealing with one person. That's a problem with, yeah. with VPN, these small, That's um, a good point. These small areas, these small parcels. That's a good point. Didn't have any issue with these guys. And eventually he's like, yeah, okay, let's go. I'll go in there with you. We'll find it. We'll get it. But two days, two days later, there was another guy over there hunting it. Yeah, and that's, that's problematic, point. right? I mean, if you're going to start, especially when it's a small acreage where you stick an arrow in a buck and it's going to run into the thickest brush, which is on this other guy's place because that's what he's been nurturing. Yeah. So, I, I I'm glad I don't have any of that land around me, but at the same time, I understand the need for it and the purpose for it. That that that's one part of the access puzzle. Leasing is another part of the access puzzle. I know that private landowners, I know private landowners around here who lease their, because they don't hunt, they lease it year round to a group of people. And those guys or those hunters do management work on the land. They do, you know, whatever with the approval of the landowner. And that landowner gets the benefit of getting paid for it. One of them was a very good friend of mine who, kept his farm because 
he was he was leasing it and getting a, a nice sum of money that made his property financially viable. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting part of it too. There's benefits to that because it's public access after all. It's restricted public access. So people are like, yeah. oh, they're leasing stuff up and they're not letting other people in there. And it's like, well, again, access has value. We could go down to the local gas station down here and pick up the local shopper stopper. And I guarantee you there'd be two or three ads in the real estate section for people looking for land lease because they're sick and tired of the public land game. Yeah. Where and and because there's so little public land, and then this voluntary, they they run into all kinds of issues with it. That doesn't even begin to broach the subject of why should 100 percent of Americans fund in the farm bill voluntary public access uh, programs that are really for the benefit of five percent of the population. Mm. Yeah. So it's a fair question. Well, I think it is too. So, oh, you want because that's because it's my game. I'm people, right? I'm I'm it's the people's game. And I don't disagree with that. But the land that it lives on is not. And I look at the issues the and they're vastly different issues out west with private land and access and outfitters and the value of oh my god. Well, the value isn't the value is the game. Mm-hmm. And yeah. People who can advocate for access and for all of that, um, who anybody who's making a nickel off of hunting, fishing, con- conservation, better tread pretty damn lightly when it comes to talking about leasing or uh, people making money on hunting because hunting money's made on hunting by uh, and hunting and, and outdoor. In a lot of different ways, in a yeah. lot of different ways. So, the VPA programs, anyway, are are not a great example of user pay, right? Because the users aren't paying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know what the landowner gets out of it. He gets he or she gets paid for allowing access onto that property. I know what the hunter or access seeker gets. They get access. My question is, what's the land get out of that? Yeah, that's a, that users. Somebody else is actually question. paying. That that access person is actually somebody else is paying the freight for them to be on there, so, and I think it's I think that's okay because that works in some cases. You know, you get out to um, to uh, Montana and they get their black block management program, which is paid from the proceeds of hunting licenses. Yeah, but that also then brings up this whole other discussion about what is conservation and what is wildlife. Wildlife involves a lot more species than a handful of game species. Yeah. And conservation and habitat has a hell of a lot more to do than just habitat for game species and conservation of game species. So hunting is conservation is this thing that I, I, I like having the discussion about it, right? That, that let's think about that in a, bigger, in a bigger sense. So I will tell you this about our place, um, unless you want to ask me something else, but, I will tell you, <laughs> but I'll tell you this. I leased this farm for 14 days to four bow hunters because, as we've talked about earlier, bow hunting's for people who don't have enough to do. <laughs> and I, I have not been a bow hunter. I resemble hunter. that remark. <laughs> but I have, n- but you know, I mean, but, and it's a thing that you're dedicating time to. And I mean, I'm all, I'm all for it. Sure. What I'm not for is bow hunting becoming uh, something that is a detriment to the resource. And I would, this is a whole nother rabbit hole, but I will tell you that bow hunting in Wisconsin is part of the reason we are not controlling the herd 
mm. or chronic wasting disease. And it's not bow hunters, mm. but it's a certain group of bow hunters who have been politically very active and, you know, wanting to do something about chronic wasting disease is very different than, than actually when, when ideas are brought up, well, we're willing to do something about chronic wasting disease, but it can't interfere with our bow hunting. You, you've brought that up a few times, chronic wasting disease. Could you, could you just say what that is and, and, and jump into that for anyone who doesn't know? Oh, man. <laughs> um, chronic wasting disease is a transferable spongiform encephalopathy. It is a disease that transfers between uh, deer, and it is an always fatal disease that once you have it in an area and your deer herd have it, has it, it will begin to expand exponentially to the point where it it can have and does have an effect on the not only the health of deer and will kill that deer, but also on the population uh, of the the local uh, deer. Ooh, yeah, could uh, well, and it's there's multiple so that, so chronic wasting diseases the deer version of that cervid dirt but there's also other forms that have been in livestock a mad cow disease back in the 90s became really a big talking point um even uh, uh sheep with scrapey talking sheep point goat. man it was a problem yeah yeah they figured out why it was a problem and once they figured that out and stopped it <laughs> yeah and scrapies and sheep has, has been around for right. for uh centuries known records basically yeah and and even they still human, haven't figured and, it out. And even a human. Uh, yeah, Kreutzfeldt-Jakobs. Yeah, Kreutzfeldt-Jakobs. Uh, so it, it's it's a very serious problem for for uh, a lot of different species. However, its prevalence within deer, so cervid species, deer, elk, uh, moose, uh, those are really the... So if like a coyote deer. eats a deer that has it? So far, no. Okay. So far, no. But, Although it passes through. Right. Okay. Right, yes. Yeah, those prions, those misshapen proteins that influence the structure of the proteins surrounding them when they're put in their environment. So uh, uh, they, you know, proteins are basically lo- covered in little chemical factors that can have all sorts of uh, bonding interactions with other chemicals that are introduced to their environment. And these prions do that and they cause the breakdown of the overall tissue by changing the structure of the proteins that make up the tissue and uh, uh the cause literally physical holes in the brain tissue of of uh these infected organisms and as doug said always fatal no cure and not only that because it's not a living thing it's just a chemical factor a protein very hard to destroy in fact what is it doug they can they can stay viable in their environment for like 10 years well they're yeah they're still trying to figure that out exactly and yeah i mean boy to start talking about chronic wasting disease and as a small part of a of a podcast (laughs) right yeah this could be a whole other hours on it yeah yeah, yeah, time on, on on various podcasts but you do you must have been a science teacher or something you do a great job of explaining it and uh so it's a disease that there's no cure and it is always fatal and it transfers amongst uh, deer. Um, and I know I brought it up, you know, several times because it's something that I'm doing a lot of, uh, I, I do, I've been doing a lot of work in for a long time. And <clears throat> what we try to do with most diseases 
that we don't have a cure for. Think of all of the diseases that we don't have a cure for, starting with the common cold, right? Um, or with the flu or all of these things that seem like they should be solvable because they're bacteria-based or virus-based or whatever. This thing is just a completely, the, the, the misfolded yeah. prion is a completely different thing. Um, any disease that you can't cure, what you try to do is manage it. Mm-hmm. And so I like to say about chronic wasting disease that one, um, if you don't have it, you don't want it. And if you do have it, you want as little as possible. And so keep it out where you can and then manage it where, where you have it. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we've not done a good job of either one of those things here in Wisconsin. And I would say that we are a cautionary tale yeah. for other parts of the country. And not quite honestly, if you spend a bunch of time, uh, you, want, you have time to, to see what's happening in Wyoming and Colorado where chronic wasting disease has been for a long time. They, have, they are seeing the population level implications, um, areas where there are few, if any, uh, mule deer um and uh you know well, there's a lot of reasons for that well this is one of the big ones yeah and there's um it, it, you know it's it's a, mod- a modified landscape has made this spread all the faster too yeah well here we are in an area where as we here we are in an area where we have 65 deer per square mile of habitat mm. 85% of this county is deer habitat. And we were driving around before. You saw that, right? I mean, deer, as you said, they're a creature of edge. Everything is edge around here, <laughs> yeah. right? Oh so 65, and when I was a kid, 10 to 15 deer per square mile. Wow. And that's, that's in 40, and, and, 50, and 40 so, 50 years of change. Yeah. And so it's a disease that spreads in two ways. One is in, uh, in behavior, frequency dependence, that yeah. you have animals that will through their behavior, spread the disease more. Oh, what animals were, are those that go around and travel around various places in search of, you know, those are bucks. And then it's a density-dependent disease also, where if you have a lot of animals in an area, they're coming in contact with each other. It's a very, very yep. communicable disease, uh, very quickly transferred disease. Um, so the way we mitigate that is to have fewer animals um, and... And hopefully that makes them spread out as well. And it, so reduction of the herd is a, is a big part of it. It's a real hard thing for people to mm-hmm. to understand, or not. It's not hard to understand at all. It's really easy to understand. It's really <laughs> really easy to understand. It's very difficult for people to say, well, yeah, but I don't. I want to have a good deer hunting too. Yeah, yeah. You were, uh, you were saying earlier that everyone wants to get to heaven. Nobody wants to die. Yeah, yeah. that's a great. So paying the price. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, well, and it goes hand in hand with where, you know, kind of take things full circle here. When you were standing on that ridge with the forester, and he basically said, you're you're making the tough decision. Thank you. And that's what's got to happen with the deer, too, is it's got to – we have to be willing to make a tough decision in order to uh, – make something better for those after us. And, you know, quite honestly, uh, now, I mean, you go south of us down here and there's still a lot of deer, quote unquote, a lot of deer, but it's a younger herd because deer just don't get old when there's, you know, (laughs) this is an analogy that 
a biologist laid on me one day, and it's that, um, and you guys might even know about this disease, but that um, chronic wasting disease is the Dutch elm disease of the white-tailed yeah. deer. Yeah. And, you know, we still yeah. have elm trees out here. There's one outside the window out yep. here. It's dead now. Yep. They don't get very big anymore. There's no. still elms around. And every that, one of them's got a big dead patch in the yeah in the top of it and so and and the more isolated they are the more apt they are to to get to be an to be an old age yeah so if what you are interested in is um if what you're interested in is killing let's say big giant bucks then you should be concerned about chronic wasting disease because where chronic the prevalence is high Mm. they don't get old yeah yeah there are fewer and fewer of them around um uh, if what you're interested in is, um, I, I just think about the resource itself. I mean, it's a horrific disease. I've seen deer with chronic wasting disease. It's just a horrific disease to see yeah. the deer go through, the individual animal go through. Mm-hmm. Horrific. Yeah. Um, Forgetting how to eat. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then not being able to. I just saw some yeah. uh, really interesting data about some of the deer that they that were a part of this study that was done here south of us and um, when they the deer were still eating they died of chronic wasting disease or pneumonia or something related to chronic wasting disease because of the way their brain had shut down yet they still were had been eating and there were there was um, stuff in their rumen and um uh but somehow it wasn't digesting so it was you know maybe their their body was trying to get the signal from the brain to yeah, so so many things Ooh. happening, you know, at the same that makes you makes you wonder about it all. Um, you know, a real difficult thing to, to you know to think about. So let's manage that disease, right? I mean, even I mean, I know I have friends who have cancer, friends and family who have cancer, and they're managing that disease. They're not going to be ever going to be well. Maybe some of them will be cancer free, but we're trying to. What they're doing is really managing that disease with within them we can manage this within the herd keep prevalence low um we do that by you know keeping deer numbers low mm-hmm. much lower than what they are and around here in more in balance with the ecosystem as well deer i don't know what the high end of of how many deer we could actually have on the landscape here i don't yeah. know what that number yeah. is because we have crops and we can but i can tell you already i can take you out in the woods here and i can tell you show you where there's deer damage to the rest of the ecosystem because of the high numbers so even with us doing the amount of killing of deer that we are in this place 65 deer per square mile i essentially control a square mile of of habitat here between our place and the place next door we killed 40 deer last year so, and that square mile, if they were just living in that square mile, we killed two-thirds of the deer. And we killed 40 deer the year before that. And we killed 30 year deer before that. And 30 deer a year before that. And 30, so wow. we should be out of deer, right? Yeah. yeah. But but we're not. And yeah. in fact, you know, we, we aren't going to have time to do it. We can go out and drive around. I can show you 150 deer here in some of the same places where we went. Yeah. And, you know, in a half an hour drive, 40 minute drive because of the, 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 the small, uh, the, the parcels and, and all of that. Holy moly. How did we get there? Oh, he asked me about <laughs> chronic wasting disease. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, yeah. It's, it, and it's something that our listeners need to be aware of because it is an issue and it is present in Iowa as well. Um, but it's not you know, nearly like not, it is not here. as prevalent, not nearly as prevalent, but still in 
probably close to it's been detected in probably close to 10 counties now out of our 99 counties um a lot of it in northeast iowa yes okay yep right across the river from wisconsin where it's it's most concentrated however we have we've we've had a case out and all the way out in potawatomi county which is on the border with uh, nebraska yeah and we've had cases down on the border along missouri and missouri i believe has had some yes they have right and and uh but you know to give hope too because this does sound pretty bleak um illinois has had some very surprising and and uh exciting successes uh with their management doing a lot of the things that doug's talked about they've they've done unfortunately not been able to do as much through hunting as they've had to do with sharpshooting uh but hey if that's what it's going to take then that's what it's going to take that meat um that that's a that's it's another can up to you. that's another can of worms but uh <laughs> Man, you just cooked that real good my just, goodness just, no no it doesn't but i will say this about that that's a, there is yet to be yes a confirmed case of uh crossing of, the species barrier of, of a, crossing the species barrier from from cervids to humans hmm. yet being an operative word there um it was got, interesting being in SEDAC training on Saturday, and we were talking about this, and they're showing pictures of these, you know, like yeah. a deer laying by the side of the road with chronic wasting disease, and it's, it's you know, all emaciated, and it's shaking. And I've got video of one that we had here, too. But, mm. um, and and there it is, and the deer is clearly sick, you know, and, one, and one, another one with a distended belly, and it's just skin and bones. And, and um, mm. guys were saying, oh, yeah, I'm eating it. I was like, you eat that deer? Well, yeah. no, it's sick. I'm like, but the deer that you are eating, knowing quote unquote knowingly, has the same disease that does that. So how would you yeah. eat that deer but not that one? Yeah. Don't give you know that that stuff really gets that, me. One one of my favorite lines, and I'll let you I'll let you uh, say it, Doug. It comes from Steve Ranella when he hears people who say that chronic wasting disease isn't a big deal. They don't care. They're going to eat it no matter what. Uh, what what does he tell them? He wants to grind up a whole bunch of burger from some of these, and then and, and yeah, and, and not just from the steaks. From oh yeah, from the brain and everything, the yeah. spinal cord spinal and cord, all said, that okay, stuff. Oh, yeah, now, I'll eat that. Yeah, yeah. So basically, the areas of the body that are absolutely loaded with, uh, uh, you know, these prions, grind those up and and into a burger, cook it up like a regular burger and everything. And if you're willing to take a bite of that burger. Then he's willing to listen to you about not believing in uh, chronic wasting disease. And you know what I want to see though? I want to see him do it. I don't <laughs> yeah. want to say. I don't want to hear him say they'll do it <laughs> like the guitar player did. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll eat it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Here it is, and I'll yep. show you the deer that it came from. Yep. Now, I bet you that. So obviously, I'm telling you that I won't eat a deer that I know. I won't eat meat from right. a deer that I know is positive. But I will also say this. When I get deer tested, I'm not getting a negative result. I'm getting positive or not detected. It's possible that the deer that I ate could have CWD. Mm. It has just hasn't yeah, been yeah. detected it's yet. So, so there are the, all these 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 nuances of all of that, right? But it, like anything in life, it's it's risk reduction. Yeah. Why would I do that? I mean, what kind of point is it that you're trying to 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 prove? And people will say, "Oh, you're wasting the resource." And I'm like, you know, no, we're not. I'll tell you why. One is I just took the life of an animal that was going to die a miserable death. Yes. And if I shot it and killed it cleanly and ethically, then I just saved it from a miserable death. The other thing that happened is I just 
by by taking it off the landscape mm-hmm. and caring for it and disposing of it properly, I've also just take infectious material off yeah. the landscape. Yep. Saved a bunch of other deer. Yeah, Saved a thing, bunch of other yeah, deer. Yeah, if that exactly thing ran around for another year or two, just think of how many. Yeah, and destroyed. that's the other part of it, right? One that's infected is casting it off. And we're mm-hmm. seeing that more south of us than, than up here. But um, but we're kind of, if the fire's burning, it's not burning hot here yet. It's burning. Yeah. yeah. Five out of the eight bucks that we killed last year were positive. None of them looked sick. Wow. Wow. But five out of eight, 60%. Ooh. That's crazy. Tested positive. So then you look at them and go, well, it didn't look sick. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they can have that disease for two years and they only look sick the last four to six weeks, four to eight weeks wow. of the, and they, it, it, yeah. once it hit, goes over the, the tipping point, it, they crash fast. Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, if you're not eating or you're eating and that vegetation is sitting in your stomach, you tend to not make it too long. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's all a part of it. Well, to try to, there's a silver lining in all of this, and I'll try to get to that now. Right? <laughs> so, one of the things that we've been doing here for a long time is trying to control our deer herd, at least locally in the 600 acres that I um, have control over. 600 plus, it's really. Um, anyway, uh, several years ago, I shot seven antlerless deer one afternoon. Wow. I just sat there, and they kept walking out, and I just kept shooting them. Wow. I hadn't any interest in butchering seven deer, but I did was trying to reduce the herd. My regular group of gun hunters had come and gone, and we, I don't remember, maybe we'd shot a dozen deer or something like that. Um, I remember years when we'd take four or five. You know, I thought that was a lot. Mm-hmm. And we'd still see it, but we were being real selective about what deer we were taking and you know, bucks we were taking and all that jazz. Um, but then we started, once we started taking more antlerless deer because we were trying to protect the rest of the ecosystem, like our oak regeneration, stuff like that, all of a sudden we had bigger, more and bigger bucks. And I don't know that we had more and bigger bucks around. It's just that they seemed to be showing themselves more because there was more competition for the does that were left. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, there's definitely a motivation there if you are a, you know, real interested in that trophy value. Doing that effective uh, population management creates a demand that brings in. It is the number two part of the Quality Deer Management Association, now the National Deer Association, their tenants, right? Yeah. One of them is, although I don't hear them say this as much anymore, let him go so he may grow. But the second one is uh, controlling population in balance with the ecosystem and and improving your buck to doe ratio. Yeah. Mm. If you have a close to closer to a one-to-one buck to doe ratio and i don't know what it is around here you'll see one buck for well i've seen probably uh 30 dead does on the side of the road and not a single buck of course they could be shed out before you know yeah yeah yeah, but that's not but but i will tell you that yeah i mean people ironically enough we did have one hunt here during the antlerless hunt where we Bumped eight bucks, hmm. all antlered, and we didn't get one doe to go. <laughs> we had antlerless. We had learned to hunters out, and we literally couldn't get a wow. doe to go by them. But we also shoot a lot of does, so that's yeah. part of it too, right? Mm-hmm. So, But what you end up seeing then is during the rut, bucks are having to get up and pursue and find does versus, you know, like an, especially an older buck. And let's call Doug an older buck, right? So an older buck 
kind of used to where he lives. And I'm going to hang out here where I live. And, you know, <laughs> well, I'm a married man, but um, I'm not going to get up and go wandering around looking for, you know, a mate when, well, I've got one here. And, you know, and if we were, if we were into, this is good. This is going south. This is going south fast, me fellas. You may want to cut this out. But, but if we were into polygamy or whatever, right? That um, oh well, we got a bunch of women living right around here, right around the farm, and so you know I don't have to go anywhere for all of that. I can just right here. But wow, there isn't anybody here. So I'm a yeah. single farmer who, you know, is interested in finding a mate, and there aren't any around here. I got to go and travel to go yeah, and find right, them, yeah. right? God, it's a horrible analogy, but, 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 but uh, forgive me if you think through that, you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. Insert some like Morgan, uh, Marvin Gaye music right in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, but, but it was really interesting because Ernebuck ended up being despair. We had a program, a, a, a policy here called Ernebuck where you had to kill a doe before yeah. you could harvest a buck, before to, to earn a buck tag. Huh. That's and fun. boy, it was the best deer management, uh, policy that was ever invented wow we were knocking the doe i can you can look at the statistics we were knocking the doe population back and my bow hunting friends were like holy crap in those years were we seeing a lot of bucks on their feet looking for does well what happened was of course everybody's shooting a doe because they had to have one for a buck tag yeah the problem and the where the complaints came in by a, a certain group of hunters well, I don't want to have to let that buck go by when I get the chance to, you know, what if I don't have a buck tag and a buck goes by? Well, they actually came up with a pretty reasonable uh, way of dealing with that. If you shoot a buck, or I'm sorry, you shoot an antlerless deer in, let's say you did it in 2022, you would then, and you didn't use your buck tag that you earned, it would actually, you'd start out yeah. the 2023 season with a buck tag. Wow. Yeah. Rollover. That's neat. Yeah, so that rollover, I mean, it was like, so you could shoot your doe ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. They were basically like, I don't want to get out of my chair a second time. I'll just wheel right on out to my spot. I'll lay in my bed. I'll get up when there's a deer and I'll lay back down. I'll wheel back to my house. <laughs> well, no, I don't know. I think you're being a little, yeah, yeah. whatever, but you're demonstrating the point. And that point is that um, when there some social science studies were done on this, that most deer hunters will harvest one deer. Yeah. And they want it to be, you know, a lot of them want it to be a buck. What's cool about folks that are more in your age group who are the, like, well, like you, like the emerging hunters, sure, I yeah. know you want to kill a big giant buck if you right. get the chance. But boy, I also want to put meat I'm in not, the freezer. Yeah, exactly. I'm not coming home empty-handed. <laughs> well, right. And so there's there's that. And then there's a lot of the folks that I interact with who are just I just want to be honest about the protein that I'm that I'm putting yeah. into my body and I'm if I'm going to eat meat I feel like I ought to have be involved with the yeah, right. with the harvest of that meat right yep um, so all of those things are a part of it whereas hunting was just something that we did when I was a kid yeah and never all this this thought process and all this kind of didn't go into it but I will tell you this when I was a kid when a kid got, when a deer got a kid got hit but a deer when a deer got hit down here on the highway. People would stop and say, "Hey, are you going to take that deer?" Yeah. And now, I mean, we were driving around today. How many do you see laying <laughs> yeah. in the ditch? Yep, uh, probably thirty. And so, so um, but that was also the scarcity of the resource, mm-hmm. and it also had yeah. to do with this house had a husband and wife and four or five kids in it. The house next door had a husband and wife and four or five kids in it. And the one up there, I mean, people yeah. needed it that protein to do it. Yeah. So, 
say what you will about the North American model of conservation and democracy and that everybody's game and all of that. Well, yeah, you know, that's not the way we act. We act like we're in, mm. a, in a land of riches. Yeah. yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of different, I mean, so what are we going to do to balance all of those things? And that's, those are really the questions of conservation, and I'm grappling with them all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an honest question, and it's based on some true facts. And uh, I agree. I think, uh, you know, and I, I tend to be somebody who blanket accepts the North American model. But as I'm learning more about it from guys like you, Doug, and and uh, I've talked to a few others uh, uh, that it's like, you're right. These are questions we have to grapple with and we have to grapple with them sooner rather than later, because uh, the longer that we don't address the problem the greater the problem becomes but well we're uh we're gonna have to get wrapping this one up here but we definitely don't want to uh uh miss out on talking about something that we here at hoxie native seeds and with the prairie farm podcast believe in wholeheartedly the sharing the land movement that doug has uh really thought up with some other really uh, smart people and, and uh, he's got some good people working along with him, partnering with him. Um, but something that plays off of the Riley game cooperative from uh, a guy that it means a, a lot to Doug. If you talk to Doug, you're going to hear about a hero of my own as well, a, a fellow Iowan and a fellow Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsinian. Is that how you Wisconsin, say? I- a fellow Scotty, fellow Scotty. <laughs> I always liked Iowa, though. I was like, man, those people got that stuff down. Well, the, the I, I even heard one that was pretty good too about Iowans, Iowegians. But but yeah, so so a guy who lived in both Iowa and Wisconsin, good old Aldo Leopold, um, and Doug used an idea that Aldo was a part of, known as the Riley Game Cooperative. Um, to help get people invested in the land around him. He's mentioned it a little bit, but uh, could you just give us a, a summary of what sharing the land is uh, for folks and how they can uh, get involved with that and follow along? Sure. So you can go to sharingtheland.com, www, and all of that. Um, but sharing the land is a conservation cooperators network that connects landowners and access seekers who are willing to have a relationship with the land in a way that is moving conservation forward. Mm. Um, essentially, the landowner has the land, and as I said, one of the most common things that landowners said to me, especially new landowners, man, I want a piece of land is a lot of work. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, I used to come up, I just wanted to come up for a weekend and have a place to hang out, and I find I want to work all the time. And, you know, I always say this to people about, you know, farmers and bow hunting. You notice how farmers don't bow hunt? for people who don't have enough to do. But, um, uh, so the idea of sharing the land is that there's work that needs to be done on for conservation. Some people have just money and they would yeah. like to lease a piece of property or they want to go to an outfitter and pay for that, you know, and there's, there, that's a whole nother part of it too. There's some of these groups mm-hmm. that are selling, um, v, you know, essentially VRBO for, um, for hunters that I want to go to Montana and hunt. I'm just going to lease this place for, 
four or five days and I'm going to have exclusive access to it. Well, okay, then that, and I think it's a piece of the puzzle. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I see the problems with it, but I also see the problem with the entitlement of, well, it's my game. I should be able to go anywhere to get it. Um, so sharing the land kind of puts all that together. I know the land needs our help. Mm. You know, as I said about like the VPA programs, I know well what the said. landowner gets, they get paid. I know what the access seeker gets, they get access. What's the land get out of that? Mm-hmm. And then they'll say, well, there's the habitat improvement programs that are part of that too. But again, who's doing that work? Yeah. That land, that money is coming from general funds for the farm bill that then's going into that property. But again, this access seeker has got no skin in that game. They're just going in and taking from it. Yeah. So, you know, the public landowners, like my friends at BHA, who I like very much, that's a part of the puzzle too, right? They're going out and they're working on public land. They wear those t-shirts and I've got yeah. one. It says public landowner on yeah. it. And, um, and, and what I like about BHA is they go out and do work on their land, you know, yeah. as public landowners. Yep. Well, what sharing land does is puts landowners together with people who are willing to, who might have some skills or who might not, who might not. A lot of the help that you need around a piece of property is kind of just grunt labor. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's essentially an exchange. It's the age old bartering system, right? Where mm-hmm. I'm going to do something for you. You're going to do something for me. Yeah. And, and, and isn't that great? And so we've kind of formalized that because one of the things that we found in hunting and access is that there's this disconnect between landowners and access seekers. And it's not like when I was a kid, when I knew everybody and well, how do we know people? And, yeah. and we're just trying to fill another niche, another, uh, area that for access opportunities by connecting people like that we've got um access seekers in i don't know 23 or 24 states we've got land in eight states wow um putting those two things together can be a little bit difficult um but the idea is that it's a fair exchange of helping somebody out so making a contribution to conservation um the first person that i did this with who's still a part of it didn't do anything on this property. He's a kid who volunteered for the Wisconsin Conservation Congress. Mm. And I went to the Conservation Congress meeting two years in a row, and he was there both times. And he's on the board. He's still on the board. In fact, I got, or on the Congress, I got elected onto it last night as well. Um, that's Because awesome. I showed up for the meeting, and, no, and I'm, awesome. I was I'm happy to do it. Don't get me wrong. That's but Brock awesome. is still on it. I'm talking to him. He's, he's this kid at that time was like 23 years old, and I was talking to him at the thing, and he said... Uh, we just, you know, shooting the breeze before the thing. Well, how's your turkey season, you know, shaping up? Because they always happen at this time of the year. And he goes, well, you know, I kind of lost my place where I used to hunt because the land got sold and all that. And I said, hey, Brock, if you really need a place to turkey hunt, you're doing all this good work, volunteer work for the Conservation Congress. You know, if you if you don't find another place, let me know. And, you know, I find you a place on our property. And I think at that moment, Brock quit looking for another place <laughs> to hunt. But, um <laughs> But that's what got him in because I saw this kid who was doing this great work for conservation and volunteering for it. So, I mean, another friend of mine who lets some people hunt his property, we're cleaning out a a darn trout stream on public land. And he he was trout fishing. And he goes, what are you doing? You know, and so so those are examples. Brock also does all kinds of work here now. And he actually is a a, uh, hunting – hunter safety instructor we're doing some of that out of here Mm. we're doing a a cooperator development program here as well so but we have a network of landowners who are willing to let people onto their property in exchange for 
and it's 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 a pretty much vol- they're volunteering to let you on there because you're volunteering to do some work on their property or help them in some way. And so it's building those relationships, not only with the landowner, but with also, also the land. We did some work up here last Sunday, limbing and thinning of pine trees. Hmm. Folks were limbing trees with loppers and, you know, another guy and I were running chainsaws. You know, people I can trust with that. And yeah. um, boy, and they're all, we have these conversations all around it, right? When you're doing work with yeah. people like that, you end up having these conversations. And they're like, well, this is kind of cool. And I get to tell them about the about that piece of land and oh, yeah. here's where the turkeys come out. And so they're yeah. now all of a sudden they're learning about the property they're going to hunt on too. And they're contributing to the property that they're going to hunt on. They're contributing to conservation. What I seems like a pretty simple idea to me. And yeah, good old Eldo, um, when he didn't have his own place to hunt, he was out knocking on doors. Yeah, that's right. And ask, oh, you know, he sees old Reuben Paulson and starts asking him, hey, man, you know, what, what are the, ch-? I can imagine the conversation. I don't think he said, hey, man. Yeah. But he was, he, presented this idea of I could help you with your property here. What do you think the chances are that I could hunt? And Mm. the Riley cooperative, Riley game cooperative um, was developed. Um, I'm very proud to say that we um, working with Savage um, arms and vortex and, and Onyx, but in in this particular case, Onyx, or I'm sorry, Savage, um, uh, we have a video coming out about the Riley game cooperative and I'm so proud of it. It'll be out sometime this month, and when Can't it is, I'll let it. you guys know. know yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Send it my way, please. Yeah. We, we'd be happy to share it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really a beautiful thing. One that gets people connected to a place. Like Nick started this conversation out talking about, and Doug was describing to us. It gets people connected to a place because they have equity in it uh, through time, through uh, some type two fun, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> through through some uh, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, it means so much more, and you know, you lose that element of nothing. Parties like a rental, you know, it's yeah. it's something that, in a way, does belong to them in a sense. They they feel connected to it. Uh, sense of place. Well, yep, a sense of place. Exactly right. Uh, so make sure if uh, you're tuning into this, you uh, give sharing the land a follow on Instagram. Um, uh, you can also follow Doug. Is it just at Doug Duran? On very Instagram? simple. At but Doug not D U R A N. It's D U R E N. Yeah, yeah. Doug actually was one of the original members of Duran Duran, but eighties <laughs> hair band. had to change. <laughs> but then I lost all my hair. <laughs> so to change the A to an E. Yeah, he had to change the spelling. But no, uh, uh, you can look up Doug at Doug Duran on uh, Instagram. Give him a follow. Great content. A lot yeah. of the stuff that we just talked about uh, today what is is featured there uh in a regular conversation uh by doug and and uh just you get to see the world through his eyes a little bit too you can also a, on sharing the land.com you can get uh merch from there right it's actually on doug duran.com doug duran.com on sharing the land.com though you can go if you're interested you can go on there if you're a landowner you can fill out a cooperating land profile it'll you can find out what that's all about and there's also it's a fillable form for both of these, a conservation resume. And if you're in an area, we do have some, we don't have any landowners in Iowa yet. Although we have a couple who, if we were fishing, I'd say I almost got them in the net. Um, <laughs> uh, trout fishing. Um, I've done some talks down there and people are, are super sure, interested. Yeah. But one of the things, it, uh, uh, the access seekers are very quick to join. Landowners takes a little bit longer yeah. because it's, you can imagine yeah, it's just it's the nature you're, of it, you're yeah. willing to open up a little bit 
Yeah, um, yeah. But I'm practicing what I preach here, man. I mean, we yep. had 40, well, 50 people last year, different people hunt this place. Four of them paid. Yeah. Four of them, you know, and so we, I was able to balance this whole yep. thing about, you know, leasing that allowed me to, to show my partners that, hey, you know, there is value to this and these people are paying yeah. and it's helping with the, the day-to-day yeah, cost of the farm. Else, yeah. And then these other folks are coming here and they're not paying anything, but they're helping me with these things. And yeah. they're like, wow, well, yeah. this is really great. Yeah, yeah. Maybe so. we should do that and just have people hoe our weeds in the summer. Yeah, and then they can well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, the the idea that people could would come and help you for the. Op, I mean, if they were into getting your seeds and that kind of stuff, and I'm really interested in what you guys are doing and how you're doing, and I'm gonna have to come out there and pay. Oh, you a visit. absolutely. Yeah. You're welcome anytime, Doug. And we got some out. of the best pheasant hunting around. Um, I mean, maybe not as good as some areas of South Dakota, but you, know, you get. 500 acres of prairie well, put, put it this way we get a lot of door knockers at the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i noticed i noticed that over here you got a yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's how i first came across oxy i i uh went flying by at about 60 miles an hour and about broke my neck seeing all that prairie grass yeah. <laughs> yeah, eyes popped out after a uh, after a pheasantless <laughs> afternoon but uh no uh it it's it's just been a real honor doug to get here yeah. just to hang out with you man it's it's well, a, I appreciate you, appreciate you guys making the, the trip over here, and it was fun to show yeah. you around a little bit. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do is to show people around, and, and you know, I know we have more conversations to have. And Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. If you yeah. guys haven't heard Doug before, please check him out. He is a man of great influence and great humility, and it, it, it uh, creates a fun time. So Yeah, yeah. and, uh, you know, everything we've seen today is uh, right on – right on theme with everything we talk about on the podcast uh nick you, it's your it's your great phrase that you came up with so i'll let you uh close this one out buddy yeah oh cool well as we talked about with with just education and and hanging out with doug uh we know and you guys all know that conservation happens one mind at a time Ooh, i like that one too Doug Duran. I'm a landowner trying to be a conservationist in Wisconsin, and this is the Prairie Land Podcast. Ooh, close. close. The Prairie yeah. Farm Podcast. Prairie you Farm just say that Con- part. Prairie Farm Podcast. You want me to start over? No, no. That's Please, perfect. let me start over. You're going you're gonna to put all that shit in there. <laughs> no no editing. <laughs> the B-side. Ooh, close. <laughs> this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. B-side. Yeah. I, can, I mean, I'll do it again. Yeah, go for it.